Amen. Well, what a glorious thing it is to be studying the book of Hebrews. It's so beautiful and wonderful, and the themes in the book of Hebrews are tremendous. They are life-changing if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, if we understand the life-changing message of the book that a new and living way has been opened up to us in Christ, in His blood, as we sang about. The blood speaks of better things, better, as Hebrews says in chapter 12, better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus speaks to our righteousness. It speaks to our sanctification and our propitiation and our salvation. And that is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's about showing the better than quality of the covenant that Jesus inaugurated in his blood. But this better-like quality is a redemptive quality, and on a redemptive scale, the angels have played a very prominent role in redemptive history. That is why the author of Hebrews feels the need to bring in the better than the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus to the angels. Because maybe to us, we don't understand the prominence of angels, but to the Jewish mind, Angels held a very prominent role, very prominent place. And you see this throughout redemptive history. I want to give you three quick examples of this. First, you see it in the life of the patriarchs. You see it in Abraham's life. You see it in Jacob's life. You even see it in the life of Ishmael. You see it throughout the history of the patriarchal period that the, the Lord shows up through his angels you see it in Abraham as you know there in Genesis 18 that Abraham is visited by three angels, one of them being the angel of the Lord. The other two were angels that came to administer God's judgment on a wayward people, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, angels are powerful beings. 185 Assyrians understood the nature of the power of angels. They were laid waste at God's commands. And Abraham, as he stood there with the angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany, really a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, as the text says, the Yahweh on earth rained down fire and brimstone from the Yahweh in heaven. And angelology is just a magnificent thing throughout the scriptures. You also see the angel of the Lord, as I said, in the life of Jacob. You remember Jacob has a dream of the angels ascending and descending on a ladder that reached into heaven. And we know from the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 51, that Jesus said that episode of that uh, interaction with Jacob and the angels ultimately was a symbol of the mediatory work of Christ, that Jesus was himself the ladder that the angels ascend and descend upon. In other words, he is the portal into heaven. He is the portal into heaven. And God reaffirms his covenant with Jacob through this experience with 
The angels, as he is given again another messianic promise in Genesis 28 of his descendants that will be fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And Jacob is wrestling with this angel so that God transforms this patriarch from a conniver and a deceiver to a person that is self-denying and wholly dependent upon the Lord so that at the end of the wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, all that, that Jacob could do is cling to the angel. That's all he could do. Fall at the mercy of this angel. Cling to him. Depend and rely on his grace and plead for his mercy and his strength. The patriarchal promises of God and the promises of a literal innumerable number of descendants That is a promise that came not just to Jacob, not just to Abraham, not just to Isaac, but even to Ishmael to to show the patriarchal fulfillment of this. The angel of the Lord appears in Genesis 21 and promises to Hagar and to Ishmael that they too, by virtue of their connection with Abraham, would be a great and mighty multitude, a great nation, it says. So you see how angels played such a prominent role in this period of time, and in the second example, of course, is in the life of Moses. We know from passages like Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, angels have a very uh, prominent role in the giving of the law. And that's probably specifically more to what the angels, why the angels are brought up here in Hebrews, just that connection they have with the old covenant. But we are told that The angel of the Lord was also involved in the life of Moses in two very specific period of times in the life of Moses, when God was revealing himself and when God was promising redemption, when redemption began there in Exodus chapter 3, the the angel of the Lord standing in the bush speaking to Moses. A lot of people don't read that. Um, I don't know any uh, Ten Commandments movie that has the angel of the Lord standing in the midst of the burning bush. They don't get that accurate. Well, that was, I believe, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his pre-incarnate form coming as the angel of the Lord again. It's just amazing how Jesus is involved as the angel of the Lord. I don't want to focus on that so, so much per se, but just to say that later on in the history of Israel, the angel of God appears time and time again to protect him. In Exodus 14 and in Exodus 23, he's there encamping around the people, protecting them from their enemies. And in Isaiah 63, The prophets also don't lose sight of the work that the angels have done. Isaiah 63, verse 9, uh, Isaiah is talking about the angel of the Lord. Uh, The angel uh, is referred to there as the angel of his presence who saved the people. It says, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them, which is amazing because in Genesis 48, Jacob calls the angel of the Lord his redeemer, the one who had redeemed him. And also you see it in the life of Joshua. Now this is important because angels furthered the progress of redemption. Angels appeared to Joshua as the angel of the Lord or the captain of the Lord of hosts, symbolizing once again that God was with Joshua just the same way that he was with Moses. 
with Moses. That's why they sang about this deliverance. Psalm 34, verse 7, they sang about this angelology. They said, the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him, and he rescues them. He rescues them. Amazing. Angels guarded the garden. Angels destroyed cities. Angels destroyed armies. Angels delivered divine messages. Angels brought revelation. Angels gave the law. This is how prominent angels are in the history of Israel. And I want to point out a couple of distinctions here as two pronouncements are made in the text of Hebrews. I want to look at these two pronouncements of angelic ministry and of the anointed Messiah. Let's just read the text one more time. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And so there you see again a scripture saturated in the Old Testament. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I love the book of Hebrews, because it brings both testaments together marvelously in Christ, ultimately in Christ. And again, we are first given a citation from Psalm 104. Psalm 104, beginning in verse 4, it says, if you go back to the original psalm, he makes his winds messengers, flames of fire, his ministers, in other words, they are the objects of creation, winds, flames of fire. They do God's bidding, and they are dependent and contingent upon God for his power, his sustaining power. Now, the author of Hebrews is picking up on the Septuagint because there the Septuagint sort of inverts the order so that, so that the messenger is the wind. And the minister is the flame of fire. And that is exactly what the angels are being uh, uh, compared to. Their ministry, their messages. And what the author is saying is that they are as transient as flame. They are as fickle as, as wind. In other words, these are analogies to creation so that we understand that the angels are nothing more than creation like wind like fire. They do God's bidding. And depending on what God has appointed for them, that depends on how they manifest themselves to humankind. You remember that it was God who determined that the angels would come clothed like men uh, so that they weren't different than other men. They were able to appear to Abraham in an anthropic form. And he veiled their glory. But they came to Sodom, they came to Assyria, and they killed all of those that were in Sodom and destroyed 185,000 warriors of Assyria. So they will do God's bidding. They execute God's mercy and they execute God's judgment. You see this at the, at the resurrection when the women at the tomb come and they are comforted by the angels in Matthew 28. Eight, even Jesus himself, it says in Matthew 4, that the angels were ministering unto him. They carry out God's ministry, but 
Their comparison to the sun is one of the lesser to the greater. And that's what I really want to focus on, is not the angelic ministry per se, but the anointed Messiah. That's the big one here. And I want to look at four distinct points under this messianic heading, the anointed Messiah. Because as prominent as angels are in the life of the Jewish people, in the history of redemption, they do not compare to what has come through the Son. They are ministers. They are servants. They are His winds, His flame. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. And so it begins with the Messiah's enthronement, His enthronement. And again, what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to is the preeminence of the Son, the fact that He is better, that He is superior, that He is supreme, that He is on the throne. Angels are not on the throne. Angels do not sit on any throne. They are God's ministers. But the Son is depicted as being not a flame, not some uh, earthly analogy, But he is divine in every respect. And his deity begins by, as we've already seen, as we already saw here, by sitting on the throne of God. Or, as it says here in verse 3, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is enthroned. Now remember, this passage that he's quoting from, this this psalm, Psalm 45, verse 8 is quoting from, again, is a Davidic psalm. It's a psalm of David, and it's a psalm that was spoken at many of the um, the, uh, uh, kingly inaugurations and the coronations of the king would have various enthronement psalms read to them and read to the people. But in a way that would never apply to David, this applies to the son, to the son. But again, it just shows that Jesus is fulfilling this Davidic prophecy. Jesus is fulfilling this Davidic throne, this image of a king and his perpetual rule. And the point of Hebrews, again, is that unlike the angels who do not sit on the throne and who do not or cannot be objects of worship, the Son sits on the throne and is worshipped as the one who sits on the throne. That's why Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, condemns the idolatry of angels or worshiping of angels. And as a matter of fact, that's so relevant in our culture. It seems like people don't hesitate to talk about how much they love their guardian angel. But, uh, yeah, people think that, you know, my angel is watching out for me. My angel is, I've had people tell me that, oh, I had my angel looking out for me today. I, you know, I didn't die in that car accident. Well, people need more than a guardian angel. They need salvation. They need the Davidic king. They need a redeemer. They don't need an angel. They need the Son of God to save them. Now, again, this psalm is used of David, and so the question might be, how is a psalm that is used of David speaking of David as God? Your throne, O God. You see that? Oh, God. And I think that what, what is meant here is that David, like Moses, represented God to the people. 
That's what you have in Exodus 7, verse 1. You remember God told Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh. That doesn't mean the deification of Moses. It just means that you will stand in a role, in a place. You will have the mouth to speak with the authority of God. And some have said, well, by virtue of David's role, ruling, governing, giving judgments to the people, those attributes are ultimately fulfilled in the attributes of God himself. So in that way, he fulfills that. What Hebrews tells us is that the psalm is not only has a messianic purpose, but the psalm teaches us that in a unique way, which David could never be called king, Jesus is now truly king, king of kings. And Jesus fills out all of the titles of David in a way that he never could because of his human limitations. Jesus only is Lord, King, Son, and God. It's amazing. Another aspect of his deity is his eternality. Not only is he called God, your throne, O God, but he has an eternal throne, is forever and ever. Now that was a that was just a way of speaking of the earthly king's perpetual throne. It would be like, oh, your throne, O king, is going to go forever. But the Messiah has this attributed to him ontologically. He has an eternal throne that will never, ever end. That's beautiful because that was a euphemism for David, but for Jesus, it is absolute reality. All of David's descendants only figuratively possessed these titles of a perpetual eternal eternal throne. Jesus possesses them literally and absolutely. Only the Son truly possesses eternal life in himself. That's what it says in John chapter 5, verse 25. He has life residing inside of himself. John 3, verse 15 says that he is also the source of eternal life. And verse 36, if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. The entire Gospel of John, as a matter of fact, is written to make that point crystal clear. Let me read to you John 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is the eternal Son of God who has an eternal throne, an everlasting reign, a kingdom that will have no end. Now turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 because this was anticipated all the way back in the Old Covenant. Daniel chapter 7, one of the key texts that show this, this is precisely how the early church thought. They understood what was being spoken of here. And in Daniel chapter 7, we are given a glimpse into the the mind of the prophets and what they thought of Christ's kingdom. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, son of man is a title that Jesus uses for himself over and over in the, in the Gospels and of his earthly existence. Son of man, which is a reference to the Messiah. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, which is the Father and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Now, anytime you see nations, peoples, uh, 
right? language. That goes back to the Abrahamic promise that through him and through his seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. This, we're, we're seeing the blessing of the nations right here. All the nations will serve him. That's how they're going to be blessed. And that's what Revelation presents. People redeemed from every tribe, tongue, nation, peop- and, 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 and people and nation. I always forget the order of that passage. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. That is what every earthly ruler, every earthly king wants. They want a never-ending dominion. They want unending power. They want unending rule. But guess what? All of the kingdoms of this earth are destined to pass away. Conversely, his kingdom, as it says here, will not pass away. He has an everlasting dominion. He remains sovereign for all eternity. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Every other kingdom is subject to destruction. Just when you thought a kingdom was mighty and powerful, and just when you thought the Medo-Persians were a powerful empire, then, then come the Romans and they destroy everything and everybody and they dominate the whole known world. And then after that, you have other kingdoms that come in and topple them and they're destroyed by by nomadic tribes and the Goths and everybody else, and then other kingdoms rise and fall throughout the nations. That's what we're witnessing throughout human history is the rising and falling of earthly kingdoms until at last the everlasting kingdom of the Messiah will emerge, will emerge. This is also consistent with the Davidic covenant in Psalm 89. Turn to Psalm 89 because this is the principal psalm which expounds on God's covenant with David, David's physical descendant, but more importantly, David's messianic descendant, that all of God's promises are fulfilled in him. It is with David's messianic seed that Hebrews is focused with after all. And that is what much of Psalm 89 is really concerned with, David's messianic seed and his messianic throne. Look at Psalm 89, beginning in verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Even though David is passed off the scene, Jesus comes to fulfill all of these promises. And look at verse 26. Jump down to verse 20. It's a large psalm. Verse 26 says, He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation, and I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. What a beautiful phrase. As the days of heaven. That is the length of Jesus' kingdom. And you jump down to verse 34. It doesn't matter what the unfaithfulness of the people do. He will remain faithful to his promises nevertheless. Now, I want to point something out to you in verse 34 through 37. Read along with me. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, including David, 
who was also unfaithful, God's covenant faithfulness to David's messianic seed cannot be broken. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness of the sky is faithful. Now, obviously, those are anthropomorphic terms that help us to understand, just like you see the moon coming up every night, every night. You know, every night my dog bothers me. I won't tell you what time in the wee hours of the morning she wants to go out to go uh, potty. But sometimes I go out there and the sky is just so big. You know, we're in Texas. Big sky. And it just, I love it when I go out there to a, a crisp, full moon. And every night, as, as sure as my dog needs to go in that backyard, that moon is going to be out there. Well, if it's a clear night and the moon is up. But the moon and its course was just a symbol, a symbol of the faithfulness of God. And more faithful than to his descendants. I want you to look at verse 36. It says, his descendants shall endure forever. But really, the Hebrew word there is zerah, which means seed, and it is singular. And so many commentators have suggested this is actually a messianic promise. David's seed, ultimate seed, messianic seed, That is uh, the father upholding his part in the covenant of redemption, which is what we're going to study next week in Sunday school. So I'll see you all there, right? (laughs) It's important. And likewise, Jesus upheld his part of the deal, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, rising again, presenting an acceptable sacrifice. This is why the Father can say to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews then focuses on Jesus' moral excellence. Look, Look at what the passage goes on to say back in Hebrews. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter, that is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So we could say that verse 9, the first part of verse 9, explains the second part of verse 8. What does it mean for him to have a righteous scepter? What does it mean for him to have a, a, a a righteous scepter being the scepter of his kingdom? This is what it means. He's a lover of righteousness and he's a hater of lawlessness. That is who Jesus is. He always does right. Now this is the king and the kingdom that the people of God were longing for all of their life. I mean, you just read what happens in 1st, 2nd Samuel, Chronicles, Kings. You study the life of the judges. Uh, You study the life of uh, the rulers, the kings of Israel. You study the life of Manasseh. You look at the life of some of these wicked kings that arose and ruled the people and the crushing tyranny and oppression. They longed for a righteous king. And Jesus is that righteous king. Turn with me to Isaiah 11. Speaks of Jesus, refers to him as the righteous king in his righteous kingdom. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1. 
It says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's beautiful. Going all the way back. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, refers to the shoot of Jesse, the descendant of Jesse. In other words, he's in that Davidic line. It says, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength. Consequently, folks, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, Jesus, as a child, it says that he grew in what? Wisdom and strength. That is not just telling us baby Jesus grew up. That is telling us messianic prophecy is being fulfilled in the upbringing of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. That's what it means for him to grow in wisdom and in strength. It's a messianic fulfillment above everything. These are not just meaningless details in the gospel. They all have theological significance. Watch this. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the Lord, of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what, he, but by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. In other words, his justice is blind to external appearances. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Much of this imagery is found, by the way, in the book of Revelation. When the coming righteous king is here, when he establishes his literal, physical, earthly kingdom. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we must see Christ reign. He must reign until every enemy is defeated. This is the nature of Christ's kingdom. That is the nature of his spiritual kingdom, and that is the nature of the kingdom to come. It depicts the moral perfections of the king. Isaiah 33, verse 17, picks this up and talks about the king in his beauty. Psalm 45 also stresses the beauty of the king. Look at that with me because I think that's important. Psalm 45. That is what Hebrews is talking about, by the way. Psalm 45. That's where it's pulling this from. But in Psalm 45, beginning in verse 1, we are given the moral excellence of the king. It says, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever, forever. And so the beauty of the king is connected to the beauty of his righteousness and of his righteous kingdom in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. On a broader level, Psalm 45 is part of the redemptive theme of the, whole, of the loveliness of the king and the preparation of his bride you see this right here in Psalm 45. If you look at verse 10, Psalm 45, verse 10, you see this very thing. Listen, O daughter, give attention. Incline your ear. Watch this. Forget your people. 
and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Amazing imagery. I think ultimately this is fulfilled in the church, obviously. Obviously, as the church, we are those who are called to leave everything for the king. After all, it was Jesus who said in Luke, 24, or Luke 14 and in other places, if you love your mother or father more than me, you are not worthy of me. You are not worthy of me. This is also quoted throughout um, uh, Psalm, or excuse me, Revelation 19, uh, all of this beautification language, and it also stems from the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, um, which uh, much of the, 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 the parallelism there is just amazing. It's, it's, it's an expansion, in other words, of the royal romance that exists ultimately depicting the love of the Messiah and his messianic bride, the church. I know a lot of people would disagree with me on that, but the more and more I study the Hebrew parallelism in Psalm 45 and the Song of Solomon and Revelation 19, the more I'm convinced the Song of Solomon is not just about monogamous relationship and how to have a good marriage, folks. It is about God's people standing in awe at the beauty of the king. That language is messianic through and through. That doesn't mean it doesn't have an original application, okay? Don't panic. It does. But what I'm saying is the whole volume of the book is written of him, including the Song of Songs. And let's move on so I get out of trouble. In John 8, 29, Jesus always did what was right. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. That is why the Son is then endowed. So not only does he have a throne, not only is, are we looking at the eternity of the Son, not only is, are we looking at his moral excellence of the Son, but also the endowment of the Son. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions, or as the psalm says, the oil of joy above your fellows. We'll unpack that. But think of the moral excellence of Christ. There is no Davidic king that ever came into the throne that truly, truly, and fully loved righteousness and hated wickedness. All you need is just a, all you need is just a snapshot of David and Bathsheba to know that king, as great as he was, and as much as he was a type of the king to come, that king himself, he did not fulfill what is written here about the Davidic king. He did not fully love righteousness. He did not ultimately hate lawlessness because he was lawless himself. He was sinful. He was depraved. He was fallible. He was errant. He was flawed and therefore could never, ever give to the people what they wanted, what they wanted. I want to show you a little apologetics here from this verse because I think it's important. It's so explicit there that we have to sort of talk about it here. But the passage is very potent when dealing with the deity of Christ, I believe. And I think we need to, I think we need to understand that. It shows the Son's equality, and yet it shows the Son's distinction from the Father. The author says, God, 
referring, I believe, to the Son. That looks back to verse 8. You see that in the text there? So that he is consistently referring to the Son as divine. So that is a defeater of Arianism and of adoptionism and any other Christological heresy that does not see Jesus as absolutely divine, 100%, God of very God, full deity, dwelling in the Son bodily. And at the same time, it qualifies that it is his God who anointed him. And as the God-man, it is not improper for Jesus to call the Father his God. And it says, your God has anointed you. So that would defeat Sabellianism or known as modalism, which teaches that the Father and the Son are the same person, the same person person. No. I was once talking to a young couple. They went to T.D. Jake's church, and I asked them, do you know that T.D. Jake's does not believe in the Trinity? At least that's not what his doctrinal statement says. It's right here in Dallas, so very relevant, right? And they said, oh, yes, he does. I said, what is the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is Jesus the Father? They said, no, of course not. Is the Father Jesus? No. That's not what T.D. Jakes believes. He believes that there is one person and that that one divine person manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you would, the one person is putting on different masks, manifesting himself in different modes, but there is no three eternal centers of consciousness. You understand, folks, Christians gave their life to defend this truth. At the Council of Nicaea, bishops showed up that were mutilated under persecution for defending the Trinity. Many of them lost limbs over this doctrine. They would not recant the doctrine of the Trinity. That's how essential it is. So Hebrews is keeping the doctrine of the Trinity intact. The person of the Son is called God. The person of the Father is called God. They share the same title, God, for they share the same divine essence. All the while, never confusing, or dis, or, or never confusing the distinction that, ex, that exists between the persons. Now, Jesus is said to be anointed with the oil of gladness, this joy-producing endowment, this anointing. And it's said that he was anointed above his companions. So to what does, does this anointing refer and to whom is he being compared? Because of the context here being that of exaltation, I will argue that what he's being anointed for here is his exaltation. It wasn't the endowment that was given to him at his, um, at his incarnation. That would be Jesus being empowered or anointed with the Holy Spirit. But here, remember, we are looking at the king on his throne. And so Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, and there he has been anointed king, the risen king of the universe. And he is higher. This is another way for him to show us how much better is Jesus to everybody else because he is anointed with gladness above your companions. And what does that refer to? Well, like King David, like David was singled out from his people, 
from his own family, from his other brothers. You remember, we looked at uh, Samuel there, First uh, Samuel 16. We saw uh, uh, the prophet Samuel going and telling Jesse, where, where are your sons? Do you have any more? Oh, yes, there's a shepherd boy out there tending the sheep. Bring him in here because we're not going to sit down until I can anoint him as the king, <laughs> right? Until I know because I have clear instructions. And so in the same way that David was singled out from his brethren, Jesus is singled out from his companions. Now, the word companions is the Greek word metakos, which just means uh, partakers, fellows, and consistently throughout the letter of Hebrews, metakos is used of believers in various contexts, and it is used of believers in the context of being companions to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. So this is the equivalent of the many sons that he has in chapter 2, verse 10, the many brothers that he has in verse 11. We are his companions. He is exalted over us. In other words, it's another way of saying Jesus has been exalted above his people. He's reigning. It's, he's, what he's doing is he's painting a picture of the sovereign king on his throne, ruling and reigning in all of his glory, above all of his companions, all of his people, all of his district, all of his kingdom. And we all serve him and worship him and bring him glory and lavish him with praise. And he is full of joy and exuberance, the joy that was set before him. He's come into that post-cross joy, post-resurrection joy. He went through it. He went through the crucible of the cross. He suffered in our place. He died, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and then he was risen again, risen triumphantly, declared to be the Son of God in power, went into the throne room of God, sat down on the throne, and that is what this passage, I believe, is referring to. It means for you and I because we might think, well, Jesus anointed the joy of gladness above his companions. And so what happens to us? <laughs> what happens to us? Well, we are not left out because we are beneficiaries of this anointing. We are beneficiaries of this gladness. His gladness is our gladness. His joy is our joy. Jesus said in John 17, he would that we would see his glory that we would partake of his joy, his joy. It's really a beautiful picture, folks. And what we have at the end of the day is Jesus exalted. So that means that we are totally secure in our king. Isn't that what people seek in a kingdom? Isn't that what people want in America? Protect us against ISIS. Protect us against the, the threat of Ebola. Protect us against this agenda or that agenda, this threat or that threat. Protect us against all of the evil enemies that encamp about us. This is what every kingdom wants. They want a secure kingdom. They want a righteous king. They want somebody to rule with equity, with integrity, with righteousness, with moral uprightness. No scandals. No scandals. We have so many scandals in the history of our nations. Just incredible. 
Just the depravity. God is just constantly confronting this world with depravity. And the more and more I think about the technology that we're in now, the technological singularity that we've come to where machine and man are coming closer and closer together, instantaneous information so that now we know instantly what's going on halfway around the world. And you know what's going on halfway around the world? Atrocities. Evil. Out of the heart of man comes murders and thefts and adulteries. That's all we're seeing is a mirror a manifestation. I forgot what city in, here in America, but they, they've created a virtual wall, like a, like a big computer screen. And in real time, there's another wall, say in China, and people can come up to the wall and watch each other through the wall. Real time, you're watching someone in China come up to the wall and wave, and there you are, and you're being confronted with each other halfway around the world, and you're connected. I mean, this is getting wild, but anyway, I just think it just shows that God is letting man know how wicked he is. And all the technological advancements that we have just shows us how corrupt the kingdoms of the world are. Many of the kingdoms of this world, they, will, they don't, they don't want to lift a finger about what's going on right now in the Middle East. Children being beheaded. I mean... Ah, uh, the, the, the uh, I forgot the name. A certain tribe there in, in North Iraq, uh, they've been completely driven out of their homeland. They have no protection. They're being slaughtered by the hundreds. They're being beheaded. Their heads are being paraded through the streets, folks. And the kingdoms of this world won't lift a finger. China won't move a finger to help a single person over there. Russia won't lift a finger to go and help anybody over there. It is always left to America. I don't want to get political, but, but what does that tell us? The kingdoms of the world are totally corrupt. I don't know about you, but this word came, landed on me with such great comfort that my king is a righteous king and that in his kingdom he loves righteousness he hates lawlessness he will always do what is right his righteous kingdom will have no end and when his kingdom comes the bible says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our god all kingdoms will be laid waste every knee will bow the tongue of every king will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the picture that we are given here. Perfect righteousness. Perfect kingdom. So what do we do? I'll give you the same advice that we're given in Psalm 45. Beautify yourself for the king. Beautify yourself for the king. We are told in Revelation 19, that the righteous deeds of the saints are the beautiful linens that adorn the bride of Christ. Where are your righteous deeds? Is your life fruitful for the king? Are you living for the king? Do you pledge allegiance to the king? Does your life reflect, my life is sold out for my king? And you can see it in every area of my life. Let it not be that any area of our life is our, our life. This is 
my area of my life. He can have all of this, but he can't have this. Can't have your finances. He's not allowed in your marriage. He's not allowed to tell you how to raise your children. He's not allowed to dictate where you're going to work, where you're going to live, how much money you're going to make, all of these things. It's appalling how often we give the king so little say in our lives. And we can all give him more preeminence in every area of our lives. That's what I want my life to be, sold out to the king. I don't want a life apart from the king. We need to say with Paul, we've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who lives, it's he that lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself for me. I don't lay aside the grace of God for if I lay, if we nullify the grace of God, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. Died for nothing. Beautify yourself. Get yourself ready for the king. You are headed to the marriage supper of the lamb where the king and his bride will have holy intercourse for all eternity, fully knowing one another and the most divine bliss that we can imagine, that we can imagine. The question that I would have you write down at the bottom of your notes is, do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, I simply pray, God, that your kingdom would have its effect in our lives even now. We know that you are ruling Jesus now. You are reigning now. Your kingdom is already as much as it is, not yet. We know your kingdom is coming. We know that we are citizens of that kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. All that remains is for us to make the trip to the heavenly city. And so, Father, would you strengthen us, cause us to see you as supreme, your son as preeminent, your son as that king that is fairer than all others, the highest king of all the kings of the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Have your way in our life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.